Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm John Lenchowski. I'm president of the Institute, and uh, it gives me great pleasure to uh, welcome you all here today. Um, for those of you who are new to the Institute, this is part of this lecture, is part of our ongoing series of uh, extracurricular uh, public lectures, of which we have about a hundred of them every year to complement our five master's degree programs and our 18 graduate certificate programs. Uh, and this one is going to be about uh, our new president's policy towards Russia. Uh, our speaker is a, a, an esteemed colleague of ours on our faculty, Dr. Marek Hodakevich. Uh, we also know him affectionately, affectionately as Dr. C. And um, Marek uh, has an extraordinary background in the field of the, the study of uh, East Central European and, uh, and Russian affairs. Uh, he uh, got his PhD in Colombia, having come here uh, after being a teenaged counter-revolutionary in communist Poland. Uh, and uh, anyway, he has, uh, is the author of many books uh, on, uh, on the relevant subjects, the most recent of which is called Intermarium. It, it refers to the lands in between the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm really proud to say that uh, as a result, uh, I think that there is a contributing factor here. Uh, his book is, was a contributing factor, if not the conceptual instigation of what is turning out to be called the Three Seas Initiative uh, amongst about 10 countries or so uh, in the eastern flank of NATO, uh, the three seas, of course, being the Baltic, the Black, and the Adriatic Seas, um, where, uh, which is being initiated uh, within the next couple of months um, in Central Europe. Uh, Marek also he teaches many courses here at, at IWP, including our course on Russian uh, politics and foreign policy. He teaches our uh, courses on strategic geography, uh, on mass murder prevention in failed and failing states. He has done many courses in uh, particularly directed studies on East Central Europe, on Western civilization and its intellectual tradition, on extremist movements, uh, and uh, the, maybe even the history of the Ottoman Empire, and I probably uh, neglected a few others. Uh, is a historian of extraordinary uh, scholarly productivity. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Hodakiewicz. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, thank, I would like to thank the person we affectionately know as the Lord and Master. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. the commander, I guess, but um, in any event, I don't use Twitter, I'm mildly Luddite, but I was asked to decipher the uh, foreign policy of the Trump administration, in particular as it pertains to Russia, and uh, one of the most welcome venues to post things that fail to square with the Washington Compost line is the Weikert Report. 
And that's what I did. I wrote a little piece uh, to talk about Russia's foreign policy and American policy towards Russia. A policy, in general, should be integrated. That is, we should figure out what we want, describe a goal, and a plan to reach it. Because the current administration is not the most adept at communications, there is lots of confusion. Like everybody knew that Obama was a secret Muslim, now everybody knows that Trump is a Soviet or post-Soviet agent, a Russian agent. Uh, well, that is all nonsense. However, it would be helpful if the White House wanted to assist us in understanding what it actually wants, including as far as Russia is concerned. Ladies and gentlemen, the threat has not changed to America since oh, 1949, when Stalin managed to steal our nuke. There's a threat is nuclear. It is not uh, the caliphatists. They are a minor irritant. People we, talk, we call global jihadis or Islamists, they are an irritant. Uh, I will return to that, but the uh, the greatest threat to the national security of the United States is the entity which possesses nuclear weapons to destroy us. And because Russia inherited the Soviet Union's nuclear arsenal, that is the main threat. Number two, as far as nuclear capacity is concerned, is China. And this is what the Trump administration should be grappling with. Um, once again, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, global jihadis, Islamists or caliphatists are an irritant. They can be used for tactical reasons to play with either Russia or China because those countries are um, irritated by them too but they should not be viewed as the chief threat to national security of the United States. They are not. First, to understand US policy toward Russia, we should comprehend that it's a projection of our culture wars. That is, whatever the liberals hate about Putin, the conservatives love. And it has nothing to do, really, with Russia. It has to do with the liberals' joyous embrace of uh, cultural Marxism and the conservative delusion that Putin is a catacomb who's going to descend upon the face of the earth and save us from Antichrist. If you read Pat Buchanan, paleoconservatives, some uh, of the... Uh, currently reigning uh, populists, they really think Putin is a swell guy. Well, to tell you the truth, I can't trust Putin I, as far as I can spit, pardon my French. Putin, ladies and gentlemen, is a post-Marxist-Leninist dialectician. He 
suavely deploys the tools of power to dupe people. He co-opts institutions and spews propaganda in the most morally relativistic fashion for the purpose of maintaining himself in power. And that is the secret of Putin and his counterintelligence state. He hasn't embraced Christianity because suddenly he met Jesus. This is simply a restoration of the traditional Caesar-Papist Byzantine paradigm in Russia. Nothing else. He uses the church, the Orthodox Church, to enhance his power and to adopt certain symbols in contradistinction to the nihilistic 1990s. Instead of Marxism-Lesbianism, we have post-Marxism-Czechism. And that's the mystery of Russia which both the left and the right fail to understand. It's ridiculous to see conservatives who deny that the Russian secret services attempted to influence our uh, elections. It's just stupid. Of course that's what they have always tried to do. The internet has given them a fabulous platform so they are much more effective than they were in the 1930s or the 1960s. <coughs> oh, it's obvious. But by the same token, it doesn't mean that this was them who, who swayed the election and gave Trump his victory. Trump's victory has very uh, deep roots. It's a populist reaction about, against political correctness. It's also a depression over the state of our economy uh, and further revulsion at the globalist promise that delivered to the globalist elites, only not to the American people. Mr. W talked about it, and he got it right. That's why. Not because of Putin's magic that made Trump president. All this nonsense should be put to rest. It should be put to sleep. Instead, we should try to understand Trump's Russian foreign policy as follows. Number one. No Russian agent would call the Russian president and say, Dude, I've just learned about this new start. This is completely unfair. We're going to renegotiate it. He would not have instructed, I hope he instructed his US ambassador at the UN, to say that Crimea is Ukrainian. He would not have sent a letter to the president of Lithuania stressing that Crimea is Ukrainian. This is not a trick. Trump, Trump thinks all of this is his real estate, not Putin's. He's not going to give it up, not without bargaining. Whether or not uh, a new reset is in the cards, a new Yalta, like Hillary Clinton and Obama wanted, that's another story. I don't know. I don't know yet. Everything is up in the air. The architect of Trump's Russia policy, at least at the tactical level, was Mike Flynn. General Flynn wanted to 
do what every single serviceman and woman does in the United States military, namely win. Let us win. Anywhere I, anywhere I go, anytime I um, deal with the military, they say, just let us win. Okay? We know how to do it. Why the heck do you interfere with the American way of war, which is the total annihilation of the enemy? The total annihilation of the enemy does not mean total extermination. It means the breaking of the enemy's will to resist. We took Berlin, the Germans got the message. And they haven't been a problem too much for a long time. Same with the Japanese. And that is exactly what the US military proposes to do in Afghanistan, Iraq, and anywhere else they're involved. They, won't, they do not want to dilly-dally. And since Mike Flynn, when he was running military intelligence in Afghanistan and later um, Defense Intelligence Agency here, was denied the possibility of victory, he was really upset. That was one of the reasons he left. And he devised the policy. America does the flying, the Ruskies do the dying. It's very simple. He wants to use Russia so that Russia would become engaged in the Middle East and bleed itself white. That in itself would at least limit Russia's capability to influence the situation on its western border, to interfere anymore in the Baltics, or at least interfere effectively. Flynn wants a repeat of Afghanistan. Flynn wants, and he taught Trump about it, imprinted this into Trump. Flynn wants the Russians to become bogged down in the Middle East. Whether or not this approach is going to succeed, it's a different story. But there seem to me to be signs of well thought out strategy, even if the White House isn't capable of communicating it. I wonder whether Henry Kissinger communicated his China card well ahead of time. I think some things best remain hidden, and uh, believe me, I've given it much thought, this is still guesswork. Because maybe they really don't know what the heck they are doing. But maybe they do. Maybe there is quite a great deal of strategy, and the Twitter war, and all the silliness that goes on, it's just obfuscation. The fog of information war so that the New York TASS and its local counterpart and others in the media could get all upset about nothing. Meanwhile, the United States will pursue unimpeded its Russia strategy, its China strategy, because if indeed Moscow gets bogged down in the Middle East, and the United States shores up its eastern flank, it can become directly disengaged, say for a brigade, and some token commandos in the Baltics, and of course anti-missile and anti-cyber capabilities, and then it can take care of China, those islands 
artificial islands, the string of pearls. If our Central and Eastern European allies in the post-Soviet zone will do the heavy lifting with American equipment and American backing, that means the United States will have more manpower to disengage and move elsewhere. This way, the Middle East becomes a sideshow. The real theater of operation will be China and Russia. And that, in short, ladies and gentlemen, is what I see the Trump administration attempting to accomplish. Thank you very much. Yes, I can give you footnotes and talk for an hour and a half again, but uh, <laughs> yes, sir. Well, can you repeat the question? Yes, uh, since I, since I, since uh, uh, I've mentioned General Flynn, Admiral's asking whether there is space for um, uh, the general to uh, uh, be active in the administration or here at IWP. I don't know. He's always welcomed in my office. One time we hugged in front of his officer, officers and they were freaked out. So <laughs> I've known him for a long time. <laughs> Twelve years at least. We, his son used to study here. His son is an alumnus of IWP. Yes. He is not, uh, let me just put it this way, Putin thinks that um, American liberals are just completely moronic beings and the conservatives are youthful idiots. And Mike Flynn knows that. So if he knows that Putin thinks he's a youthful idiot, it means he's not a youthful idiot. Which mm, may surprise Putin. So he understands, and despite uh, all the flack, I think, in his mind, it's America's best interest, always. I am, it's well above my pay grade, it's the Lord and Master who decides who can appear publicly, but definitely every professor at IWP enjoys autonomy and freedom to invite <coughs> anybody to his class. And I can declare, on the pain of heresy that, sure, I'd love to have Mike Flynn in my geography and strategy or any other class because <laughs> I don't think he's a traitor <laughs> or anything like that. I'm very sorry that he was unable to transition from the mind frame of, of a special forces and intelligence officer to a politician. That would be very hard. As a, as a rule, intelligence officers don't say anything, or they just nod, uh-huh. Sometimes they'll show you something on a piece of paper, so it doesn't get recorded, uh, or gesture to you. So he was unable to transition at the White House, and that's why he fell. Uh, well, fortunately, the, the, the government is shaping up to be a hybrid of 
gazillionaires and the junta. I like the junta. <laughs> the junta is very efficient, uh, very disciplined, uh, retired officers. And I, I really like, I really enjoy that. I don't know if the gazillionaires are ready for uh, the Byzantine bowels of uh, DC's bureaucracy, but the junta is. So, and they, the, the junta tends to like the um, Occam's razor. So, anyway, uh, I think it would be fantastic if, if General Flynn could at least give a talk here. Yes, sir. Building off what we're talking about, how do you think now that the general is no longer directly influencing policy on a daily basis, how do you think that the Trump administration's foreign policy may shake out? Do you think it's still going to skew close to what Flynn advocated for, or are we going to go back to a more conventional, you know, well, the current administration is what I term insurgents. That is, they're not exactly run of the mill. You don't know. You don't know. Just because General McMaster uses the terminology of um, uh, as a uh, Bush two administration, uh, so neoconservative terminology, it doesn't mean that he's not an insurgent. He certainly published a PhD thesis that was big time insurgent, smashing. Uh, political generals, death jockeys, who embraced uh, a, a losing strategy in Vietnam. So I don't think he's that much different from the rest of the crew. It's just uh, uh, perhaps he hasn't realized that new times require a new vocabulary to describe um, old things. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to to assign General McMaster to uh, the useless heap. On the contrary, I think he's firmly on the side of the junta. And what I see will be continuity in a different form because he's his own man, of course. But uh, as far as the initial thrust of your question, anybody who gets to name names, and Mike Flynn did, wins because everybody else follows into the channel and emulates that which came first. And that was General Flynn's concept. And as I said, I have no idea if this is integrated strategy, but it looks to me like a brilliant move, uh, unveiling a plank that suggests some kind of a, a communion with the Kremlin a logistical help to the Kremlin, probably modeled after what we did in Mali. To brag, I predicted that Mali would blow up, and I wrote a paper about it. And when, when Mali did blow up, I was shocked to uh, discover that the Obama administration did everything I wrote in my paper. They plagiarized it because I was the only product on the market. For when I was asked what would go wrong in North Africa, I said Mali, and the answer was, what the heck is Mali? So what we did in Mali was provide logistical support for the French. We did the flying, the French did the dying. Serious dying. I asked a friend and a colleague at Saint-Cyr, their equivalent of the West Point, and he said about 500. We could not have taken casualties like this anywhere in a colonial misadventure.
and the French were able to thwart the Caliphates and the Taureg and the situation I wouldn't say is rosy but it's stabilized so there is great hope that because General Flynn was the architect of a policy that the administration will continue even if General McMaster will give it new flavor but I think there will be continuation until it doesn't work out when it doesn't work out the there will be a shake-up and uh, there will be a job opening for you. I'll recommend you. <laughs> yes, sir. This Flynn concept, is, is this public knowledge? Has it been... Now it is. Okay, I'm the only person in this room who has no security clearance. I am also customarily known as the Red Team. Uh, because I look at things and I'm known as clairvoyant. I also predicted the reintegration of uh, uh, this, the post-Soviet Empire and invasion of Crimea. And I was mocked in a variety of uh, serious outfits, including the Slavic Review, that I see uh, Putin as a belligerent force. One is never a prophet in one's own country. So, I don't know. The freedom that the Institute of World Politics affords us allows us to meander to places that others in academia fear to go to or don't ever think about heading towards. And that's how it works here. We are actually free to explore and say anything. And we're not constrained by political correctness. In other words, we are equal opportunity haters and we offend everybody. <laughs> and we also love everybody. We, you know. And I don't have a pony in the running. I'm not in the administration. As I said, I have no security clearance. Sometimes I'm even invited to events that, I, that, I, that I'm told by those who send me there to give uh, the powers that be hell. And I don't mind because I'm a historian. I don't want to be a general. I will be bored as an ambassador. I'm not in the running. I definitely can look at things and solve problems. It works out. Are, at least some of the time. Are there clues, yes. are there clues in, in Flynn's book? Uh, mm, I mean, you can embellish and say, of course, yes, the writing is in the wall, if we talk 10 years from now. Uh, just like Seb Gorka's bo book, the general's book, is aimed at uh, Fox News audience. So, it's simple, it's to the point, he wants to win. Those clues exist. Uh, I looked at, at speeches, I looked at um, uh, statements, and I looked at patterns, for instance, the way that Trump negotiates. Those are techniques. He always sets up 
an extraorbitant price. No, everything's mine, you can't have it unless you pay me 10 billion. And then he can settle for 2 billion, but he always opens up with some insane extraordinary uh, uh, offer. So the way they will play it is a different story. I, that I, I, I don't know, but I, want, I wanted to figure out for myself what all of this contradictory evidence means. You know, the Kremlin is still mum. In, in fact, they're in a state of shock because, you know, if you, you read Russian newspapers, there, there are some dissident voices already within the establishment, they say, oh, Trump cheated us. He screwed us over. It does not register in the U.S. press because of the hysteria on both sides. Yet, uh, I think Trump is going to play it his way. It, it, it is going to be unorthodox. Don't expect the suaveness of Big Brzezinski, you know, his closed, half-closed eyes or the sharpness of Henry Kissinger, it's going to be circus. And that's the signature of the new administration. And I try to dig in deeper and see certain signs, as I said. Uh, Trump really didn't see a contradiction between uh, pra praising Putin on the one hand and really disrespecting the, uh, the uh, notion of American exceptionalism, saying things like, oh, you know, so we never did anything wrong, huh? When, somebody, when I think O'Reilly questioned him about Russia's leader's integrity. And at the same time, he says, no, sorry, this is mine. Crimea is still Ukrainian. I'm not giving it up. So... so, so Normal human beings expect some consistency. Uh, I would say paying lip service to some convention, being nice to uh, uh, people you're going to deal with at a party, and then driving a hard bargain. That is what we're going to see. At the same time, please notice that Trump lacks a vocabulary to express himself and this is not an indication that I uh, would like to mock him as a leader. No, uh, instead, since the, uh, uh, since the counter-cultural revolution of the 1960s, our word of symbols has been hijacked by the left. So instead of, uh, instead of saying something extraordinary, intelligent. He just repeats a, a typical leftist critique straight from the pages of any American history textbook that we're just as bad as Russia. I mean, what's the best-selling textbook in American history? Yeah, Howard Zinn. That is exactly what Trump learned and that is the music. Uh, in popular culture as far as anything American. So what do we expect him to say? Until we recapture the university's higher education and restore truth, then 
we cannot expect our leaders to sound any different than everybody else in popular culture. Anyway, yes, uh, John Chop. Okay, uh, Mr. Uh, Chop. Uh, Thank uh, you for driving from New Jersey. I'm impressed. Well, I'm always uh, eager to hear what you have to say, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you were my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now it's possible. I take it back. This time it hugged me too hard. <laughs> um, during the campaign, uh, there was a bear hug. <laughs> <laughs> during the campaign, uh, 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 President Trump mentioned that he needs to uh, rethink American United States policy on nuclear proliferation. And my question goes to whether. Uh, General Flynn ever uh, commented on the deployment of nuclear weapons in uh, Poland and other uh, countries on the uh, northeast flank of NATO? Not publicly, not to my knowledge. One time I asked him at a closed lecture uh, about, because he was talking about Chinese espionage, I said, what about the Russian espionage? And I said, look at this guy, I I'll take the fifth. That's what he said. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, no, 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 no. I think everything is on the table with this administration. And there were some things on the table with the Obama administration. For instance, thanks to President Obama, we now have a contingency plan for the Baltics because we had not. And then uh, uh, President Obama walked into a room full of generals, I said, what would happen if uh, Russia invaded crickets? He says, we don't have a plan? Oh, so make one. And he walked away. Sometimes good things happen when you don't intend them to. Even by President Obama. Yes. Anyway, uh, John Armstrong? Question about domestic politics. Well, what you said, Professor, was that so Trump has the basic leftist view of Russia, which he's repeating. But doesn't that force the left then to take what had been the conservative view of Russia? I didn't say he has a leftist view. He uses leftist vocabulary and symbolism. That's a different story. So now ask your question, please. Okay, but using that symbolism uh -huh. and that version of what Russia is, we're just as bad as they are to uh -huh. in, doesn't that force the left, the Democrats, to say, Oh, no, we're not. Russia's far worse. Well, so by the force of inertia, the left has become patriotic. No, they're just, they are just anti-Trump, so they hate America less. Because they have to pretend they are patriotic and anti-Russian. They suddenly have discovered Russophobia, which is a bad thing. Why well, hate the Russians or the Chinese or anybody else? you target the people in power who are inimical to American national security. Can he do it? We will have to talk to him about public diplomacy and very many other venues to turn the tables around because the best defense is offense, including in strategic communications. We don't do that. Maybe this new administration will decide to increase our potential, also toward China. They do it to us, we don't do it 
We don't play with them. We don't talk to their people nearly enough. Yes, Colonel. All right, thanks for the uh, succinct, succinct strategic overview, particularly the way you evaluated Russia, China, and the threat of uh, global jihadi terrorism. The article is online, so you can, you know. But, uh, more specifically, you just mentioned again about uh, that under the previous administration, we did do contingency planning in NATO. So just ask you a little bit more about uh, how you might see NATO policy developing. <clears throat> so we know what uh, President Trump said as a candidate and what he recently said. However, given that the SECDEF, uh, that the Vice President went to Europe, went to NATO, went to the Munich Security Conference, how, how do you see us uh, dealing with our NATO allies now? You, you had mentioned if we can get some of our allies in Eastern Europe to do the heavy lifting, that frees, up, frees us up for other things. But particularly focusing in on our relationship with Russia and NATO, how do you see that playing out? First of all, our allies, all of our allies in NATO, not just uh, the Estonians, uh, should be on the same page as we are. Just like they were more or less in the Cold War. In fact, I remember uh, uh, a British-born, now American, saying, God, I missed the Cold War. It was so easy back then. It's so difficult now. Uh, I think the United States ought to use its influence as a unifying force for NATO, not necessarily for the European Union, which is a competing structure that uh, parasited on America's nuclear umbrella to build a fantasy welfare state for 50 years. <coughs> so we should strengthen NATO. We should um, start, well, in practical terms, we should start practicing rotations. It's already being done a little bit, but I suggested some time ago, you know, when you speak to the Spaniards, they think that the Latvians are completely bunkers that they talk about Russia. Well, then send a company of uh, Spaniards to the Latvian border. And then send a company of Latvians to see what the Spaniards and the French and the Italians tell me is an invasion from the South. Because Eastern and Central Europeans think it's a joke. They, didn't, they haven't even woken up. Uh, since last time there was an intrusion through Greece because it mostly went through the Western Balkans, so who cares? There is a real problem in Europe uh, at many levels, but most, uh, <coughs> most of it stems from the fact that we are so awfully confused. We hate ourselves because we're told to hate ourselves. We've lost faith. Uh, we have deconstructed ours, ourselves and imagined ourselves in a postmodernist way. And all we can do is stress how much we suck. It's time to stop. For the Europeans too, I don't know if, it's, uh, uh, if they have much time left, but they ought to wake up and do something about themselves. And then we should, of course, think about some ways of engaging Russia in that project. Russia is becoming Muslim. I don't know if you realize that, but if you get drunk and die, I don't know what the average age now is, 60, 59, for a male, die prematurely, 
then how many million Muslim, how many million of Muslims are there in Moscow? I know they, they have three mosques, but I don't think, uh, officially speaking, but I don't think that's what it is. I think there are at least three million in Moscow alone. And there are reports that uh, Russian women, some reports, again, this is Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and Levada Center, some independent researchers, uh, suggesting that Russian women prefer to marry Muslim men. Do you know why? They don't get drunk, and they don't beat them. So it's a, just just because you think that uh, there are no go no go zones in um, uh, France and that's a big problem or Sweden, it doesn't mean that Russia is uh, happily puttering along along as a paleoconservative utopia. I don't think any conservative would move to Russia from America would really like it. So what else uh, can we say about NATO? Policy, by all means, give the Poles a nuke that no German and no Russian would ever visit in a tank. This is the greatest guarantee of stability in Central and Eastern Europe, if Poland has nuclear capabilities. People say, oh, but you would have to have a missile system. Not really. The Poles are crazy enough. In 1939, there were the so-called volunteer living torpedoes. That is, people who wanted to be kamikaze, and they volunteered for the Polish Navy. They just never happened that way because of Blitzkrieg and stuff. But there are plenty of people who are crazy enough to carry a miniature suitcase. And believe me, Polish mathematicians and engineers are superb. Carry a suitcase to Moscow or Berlin in case of anybody trying to uh, expand, or as we say, um, absorb. Yes. And there is now territorial defense, robust territorial defense, with high school volunteers, boys and girls, ready to die. They're no joking. They really like to be free in Poland. In the Baltics, eh, from what I gather, in Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, same story. I don't think Hungary would like to be subjugated. Hungary thinks it can, it can go along and play a game. <coughs> with both Putin and Merkel and the United States and everybody else. I don't know how feasible it is. But there should be some kind of a NATO policy which encourages unity, that encourages coordination. And by NATO I mean solidarity, so that each member would be able to communicate problems to other members. The Greek military was truly demoralized and it had no capability, no mojo, no means to face the invasion. The eruption facilitated by Turkey of a wave of one million plus migrants into Europe. Why didn't the Poles help the, the, the Greeks? Why didn't the United States offer at least some guidance? Last time I checked, Greece was in NATO. No? Who was president? Oh, forget about it. Anyway, that's what I mean. NATO has to become a, a living entity again. And as I think it was Lord Isai, I love old crusty British reactionaries who say, the objective of British foreign policy, and he 
was the head of NATO. The objective of the British foreign policy is to keep the Germans down, the Russians out, and the Americans in. That was 40 years ago. I don't think the objectives have changed. Please note that some of the Central and Eastern Europeans, the Poles in particular, have been working hand in glove since they became free with the British. They are very close. The Poles, the only reason why the Poles are upset about Brexit is because the British are not in the insane place known as Brussels. Because they work very close together. What we need to do is strengthen transatlanticism. This is very important. Uh, right now you have a Franco-German team where the French say what the Germans would like to say themselves, but they're still too traumatized because we kicked their butt. So that is something we have to work on. There doesn't need to be a war, but inactivity invites inclusion. Please note the way that the post-Soviets operate. Putin pokes. If you're Pillsbury Doughboy, he'll go in. If you have a baseball bat, and say, hey, He'll say, oh, just kidding, and he'll go somewhere else. And don't expect imperialism to develop according to traditional lines. You don't have to take over a country to control it. The way he looked at Maidan was that uh, the CIA overthrew his guy, Yanukovych, who was his puppet and everything was honky-dory. And he saw himself reacting to it. At the same time, imperialism is a crime of opportunity. If your entire brass in the Ukrainian military was consisted of either wimps or agents, then you attack a country, the brass goes on Italian strike or desert. Some went over openly to the Russians, others simply did nothing. The only people who opposed actively the green men and the so-called tin cans, conservative, or GRU officers who directed the invasion of Crimea were who? Naval, Ukrainian naval cadets. So at the, at the level of West Pointers, they took the equivalent of baseball bats and kicked some butt, but then they were told to go back to the academy. That's how little it took of will and resolve to thwart an aggression, and nobody had to die. Nobody had to die. Yes, sir. Uh, I wonder if you have a sense, when we talk about the Baltics, and I know starting in 1940 with Stalin, they, he flooded the three Baltic states with Russians, with great Russians, um, using great as an ethnic term. Yes, the, um, um, do you have a sense, it's been like three generations now, do, do they consider themselves Estonians, Latvians? No. Or are they still consider themselves Russians? Yes. Oh, okay. So they're... they're Some of them, half of them in Latvia, for instance, don't speak Latvian. So they're a fifth column automatically? Uh, uh, not on their... I mean, they are the breeding ground of the fifth column, but they, I wouldn't tar them with the brush of the fifth the column because they got Latvian passports, that means they can go to London. 
Do they serve in the military? Do they yes. Drafted? If they speak the language, they do. Uh, they, so if you don't well, learn Latvian, you don't get drafted. <laughs> yes, they actually, and there is also a problem with acquiring citizenship. So they are residents. But you say they have a local passport? Uh, well, it depends. It, uh, it depends. Same in Estonia. And in Lithuania, it's, it's the most liberal of uh, passport regimes, as far as, as local Russians are concerned. If you don't speak the language, you cannot obtain a citizenship. So they, the ones who are not uh, citizens, operate still in a, in a sort of a limbo. There is a great deal of criticism from the EU of the alleged maltreatment by Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania of its uh, minorities. The governments of the Baltic states tend to pursue an ethno-nationalist policy, but at least they allow anybody who learns the language full participation. Well, the minorities refuse to learn the language because they believe it's a temporary situation. What kind of percentages are we talking about? Ten percent? No, no. In some, for instance, in Riga, almost half the population is Russian. In Tallinn, same story. Tartu is less. And then the countryside is Estonian and Latvian, but in some places the countryside can be entire blocks of minorities. For instance, from more or less the little town of Eishishki all the way to Vilnius. Vilno, it's Polish. And they are a breeding ground of the fifth column because liberal governments in Poland and even the populist government now uh, have ignored them. The only champion they have is Putin. So they watch Russian TV because they are heavily Sovietized too. Yeah. Anyway, it's a it's a very difficult situation. Yes, ma'am. Um, as you mentioned, it seems Spain and Latvia have very different experiences of the EU and different points of view of what threats are and what measures should be taken. It seems for a reignition of NATO unification, you would need some kind of leadership from one of our stronger nations. But how would let's say the United States do this without being called imperialist? especially by those nations that have a very strong um, anti-globalist views, um, more nationalist views. So how could, you, how could this reignition happen? To put it crudely, I heard in Latvia uh, and Estonia some, uh, and Lithuania some people uh, considering American troops. And this, uh, a few people would say, well, then we would have black, illegitimate black kids running around. Okay, are you willing to play? <laughs> are you willing to pay the price for your security with some black kids? Who cares? Well, it, it is an issue. In mono-ethnic cultures, it is an issue. Uh, leadership should be differentiated from hegemony. There is a way to woo even little ones without offending them. For instance, if you get on C-SPAN, there were hearings at the Senate Appropriations <coughs> Committee uh, and one of our illustrious senators opened up addressing the foreign minister of uh, Ukraine and a bunch of ambassadors from Central and Eastern Europe uh, saying, well, I'm not going to offend your families by pronouncing your names. Uh, a little bit more decorum maybe. Uh, you can make those jokes with me. 
I completely don't mind. But uh, very many people are prickly. General Rauni has always stressed, you go to Korea, learn how to say hello. Annyeonghaseyo. This shows respect. And uh, this is a good advice for any politician, not just the military that works with the military. The military usually can understand each other, just be polite and don't disregard tiny people. Leadership is not hegemony. And leadership uh, is best demonstrated by being understated. <laughs> that said, you have to realize that any attempts at fostering unity bring accusations of hegemony. Whether it is the United States, Germany, or Poland, you know, when the Poles tried to clobber something together, there were immediately accusations of Polish imperialism. Yeah, they're going to invade and take, like Zhirinovsky proposed, Take half of Ukraine, Poland, publicly, Deputy Speaker of the Duma. Uh, yeah, so anything anybody does, it has to be in some kind of concert congruence. I know that uh, in Munich, uh, Vice President Pence, Mike Pence, wanted to meet with the Poles. And he asked the Poles to organize a get-together with, with uh, the Balts and maybe someone else. Checks, and the Paul said, "No, we just want to meet by ourselves because we're so important." Well, guess what? The bots decided to meet, so the Pauls didn't get to meet. President Duda didn't get to meet Vice President Pence. Instead, he got a hug from uh, one of our illustrious senators, who graduated last in his class in flying. <laughs> Only one person knows my jokes. Um, I appreciate that. <coughs> Maybe two. Anyway, John McCain. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Mr. Klagatz. Two questions I'd love to get your opinion on. The first is uh, the Syria situation in regards to now U.S. troops being present in Syria. Because before then, the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, head of the, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had met with the Russian. Okay. Now the, the easy one, deep state. I can tell you a little bit more about the deep state in France. Here, it's very underdeveloped, and sometimes it's silly. There are holdovers, uh, civil servants, who prefer this administration from the next. Sometimes those antagonisms emerge, most notably, uh, an operation known as Deep Throat. Now, our media, God bless their souls, thought it was about a crusade for the truth against... I'm not a crook, President Nixon. The truth is, a, a disgruntled civil servant ran an operation on them, and they didn't notice. 
they thought they were the heroes and they were the dupes. So those things happen, even in a democracy. Our deep state is uh, as, as foolproof as, uh, a, a, say, the intelligence agencies are resilient to leaks and the White House. We are an open society. A, uh, one of our most fantastic professors, not that I don't love everybody else, but Dave Thomas teaches a class on uh, counterintelligence in a democratic society, and I quipped once, you mean it's an empty book? Blank pages? How can you have counterintelligence in a democratic society? It's a joke. An open society is an open society. The only people who ever managed to uh, keep their secrets and to a in a democratic society, uh, uh, keep their secrets, relatively speaking, closed are the Israelis, but they have a knife on their throat. Here in the United States of America, we think almost everything is a joke. There, I've heard horror stories about the deep state, from the deep state itself, when uh, couple of administrations ago, the Secretary of Energy refused to keep her safe closed and she thought her director of counterintelligence was paranoid for telling her to keep the safe closed. She was a former hippie, of course, so she would think that. Why? Because America's paradise. So let's not exaggerate with the deep state. I would like to see any of those people getting organized. Instead, they're always a butt of jokes. Anytime you read anything KGB, anything, anytime you hear anything FSB, uh, the American intelligence community is a butt of jokes. It doesn't mean that there are no outfits like naval counterintelligence, which is superb. Just see who catches most people. Outfits you never hear about. Uh, behemoths like the CIA. They are the post office. So what do you expect? Oh yeah, I was a veteran of the CIA, worked for five years, and I got dental and medical. yup de doo This is why you went to serve your country, to get dental and medical. That's the post office. Post office. This doesn't mean we don't have dinosaurs who served in the CIA, and some of them I greatly admire. You know, people like uh, Ray Rocca, nobody has heard about, but believe me, he was Angleton's deputy. He knew his stuff. There would be no jokes with him. Or Colonel Gratian Yatsevich, the penultimate station chief in Tehran, among other things. Do you know why he was the penultimate? Because he was probably the only source of American intelligence and diplomatic dispatches that used the word Islam and revolution and he was disbelieved so he quit on principle his successor was taken hostage <coughs> yes. so there are fantastic people at the CIA too so this is the deep state now the serious I hope you are happy unless you want to share more gossip but anyway I I think it's um, yes it's I think it's funny the deep state in America uh, maybe we'll have a presentation on France and you can ask me the same question. I'll, I'll tell you things that you won't believe. <laughs> anyway, Syria situation. Well, we've been in Syria for a long time, <coughs> except those were short incursions by special forces. From what I understand is 
the Pentagon would like to take Raqqa. If we take Raqqa, it's symbolic, we think. It's like taking Berlin. We decapitated the dragon because this is the center of the caliphatis. It is the capital of, uh, of the Islamic State. Will that solve the problem? Heck no. There are so many competing groups on our side, some of them as evil as ISIS, which are supported by your friend Turkey. Yes, no offense, there are other national socialist uh, outfits supported by uh, Russia and uh, Iran. So it's a mess. If America was France, it would withdraw, say, back when we uh, were in Iraq, we would have withdrawn to a, a tiny little piece of land that contains oil and allowed the Iraqis to kill each other. We're not like that. So I think we'll, we would like to pull a spectacular action. Under our tutelage, somebody we will label as moderate terrorists uh, will take the point attacking Raqqa, will bomb Raqqa, maybe our instructors and special forces will knock out some people at night so it would appear like our moderate terrorist allies um, uh, are the winners, and then we'll proclaim victory and move out, which won't solve anything. But at least it'll appear like we're solving things. Remember, in politics, perceptions matter. Not the truth. Look how elegant I am. <laughs> and I'm not getting paid enough to have foreign office. <laughs> but, yes. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, can you comment on the, uh, the rise of uh, China, uh, uh, including North Korean uh, nuclear uh, threat, and uh. uh, Japan, and so forth? Well, I wish we, uh, we had unleashed Chiang Kai-shek, then uh, that would have been, or I wish we had really truly supported Chiang Kai-shek, then it would have been a moot point because China would be doing its own thing and uh, it would be different. Well, so North Korea. North Korea is an unruly lapdog of Beijing. It's sort of like Albania to the Soviet Union. So it would make noises, uh, perform eccentric dances, blow things up. But it's predictable. Uh, there is a cycle. I've observed the cycle, at least in history. I'm a historian, so I have the comfort of looking back. A cycle is as, follow, as follows. They saber rattle. Then we bribe them with aid. They stop, and they build themselves, with our aid, a new generation of weapons, which they then start shooting at Japan. Meanwhile, famine kicks in, in North Korea. The Chinese start making noises, for instance, now they uh, have refused to accept anthracite coal from North Korea, which, is, which means economic situation will deteriorate even further, if it's possible. And... Uh, we will try to bribe them again with aid, which will shore up the regime again. But to affect regime change, 
would be difficult because that would upset the Chinese. So unless the Chinese do it, nothing's going to happen. We can't do it also because there are elements in the South Korean military. We had a general who, retired general, who is um, a, a, a six, who has 16th Dan in Judo, and he's Korean, not Japanese. So, uh, and he said, well, you know, they are so different from us, it would be worse than East Germany and West Germany unifying. And I was surprised because I assumed that, uh, at least in South Korean military, I know the students who are communists or pro-communists in South Korea would like reunification because they, they think true freedom resides on the other side. They should just be deported and there should be a population swap. Come to think of it, I have a lot of names of people in America who should take a trip to North Korea one way <laughs> and relieve us from the presence. Uh, voluntarily. Anyway, so... Uh, the cycle will continue. The situation is intractable, in my opinion. Unless China wants to change the regime uh, through either overt or covert means, I don't see an easy solution. However, the cyclical nature of North Korea's modus operandi causes discomfort in Japan. Uh, because America led from behind for eight years, the Japanese became very upset. They changed their constitution for the first time in post-war history. The Japanese troops are engaged in combat, not in logistical support operations, but in combat in South Sudan. This is bad news for China. In fact, it's bad news for everyone. Shogun MacArthur imposed a very nice constitution on Japan and gave them a venue to be samurai traders. And that was good for the world, good for the region. If the Chinese act up, I close my eyes and I think this. When Mao was naughty, we dispatched enough enriched uranium for at least four nukes to Japan. Did you know that? And it's still there. That's number one. The Japanese have recently bought about 2,000 of our most advanced drones. So close your, your eyes and imagine a fleet of 3 million plagiarized drones. The Chinese called the Japanese monkey people because the Japanese are so adept at copying things. Imagine this, 3 million drones with nuclear tip devices fly into China. I'm not joking, these are the Japanese. They've practiced killing for a long time. Shogun MacArthur made sure they calm down. And if there's no American leadership, and if they think and feel they are left alone, they may start thinking about certain measures that nobody will like. So it's best to have American leadership. No American leadership, Pax Americana, no matter what people say about hegemony, Again, leadership is better than hegemony. No American leadership is bad in the world. The alternative will not be Pax Sinica. They can't control anything but the region if America is knocked out. It's going to be chaos and problems. And as far, going back to the point, Colonel Oleash's point, uh, uh, about expansion, 
Russia's expansion and NATO's reactions, don't expect the Baltics first. Don't be sure. In November 2015, Putin gave a speech. He said, hi, Kazakhstan is not a real country. It's never existed like this. Who knows what's going to happen when its president dies? The reaction of the Kazakh uh, government was swift. They, they hinted, well, what's going to happen if some terrorists, if some terrorists manage to steal a nuclear device or at least nuclear material that falls off, happens, just happens to fall off the truck in Kazakhstan. This was a threat to Russia, veiled threat. Hardly any of this was reported in any shape and form by the Western press, busy with transgender bathrooms as it was, <laughs> and other priorities of national security. Yes. Miss T. Well, don't be mean. <laughs> um, you mentioned that American leadership is important and it is a key for the future of uh, like global security, collective security. How would you package that, um, or how would the Trump administration package that to his isolationist uh, uh, crowd who you know, believe the America first, pulling troops out and um, not really engaging in these other world conflicts that we actually should technically engage in, maybe not militarily, but at least as a leadership role. How would he package that? This is an excellent question. Uh, I wrote a couple of articles during the campaign pointing out this uh, lack of logic and consistency. You cannot, on the one hand, uh, advocate neo-isolationism to make America great again, or disengagement, and on the other hand promise, we're going to kick everyone's butt. Yeah, we'll go to the Middle East, we'll fix that. Yeah, we'll, we'll defeat the terrorists, we'll, we'll make sure the Chinese behave. Okay, that was a kind of uh, schizoid campaign rhetoric. It's visible now that we are engaged and we're getting more and more engaged. So I guess Pat Buchanan won't be voting for um, uh, Donald Trump next time. Or maybe he'll force himself to, I don't know. Um, what I think is going to happen with the isolationist rhetoric of the Trump administration is it will be channeled into trade wars, it will be channeled into economic nationalism, so we'll look at um, economic statecraft rather than military uh, and other diplomatic facets of uh, leadership abroad. That's, and that, that they'll use economic statecraft. Samsung is going to relocate a factory from Mexico to the United States. Woo! -hoo! Isolationism. We win. We get a factory. Of course, if you give them a tax break, China will relocate itself to the United States. This is a no-brainer. Um, Yes, the, the disconnect between rhetoric and reality is real, but it, I think it's just a, a natural phenomenon in democratic politics. You have to woo the voter. You say, I don't have to woo the voter. I'm a crusty old reactionary, so 
I serve the Vulture. It was my advice, but I'm not going to give the people what they want to hear. I'll be the red team, because that's fun. And that's also much more interesting. You don't need to spin. Ah, if he's saying this, what he, what is he really thinking? Sometimes I get that. So that's what I'm thinking. Otherwise, I wouldn't be wasting your time. Why would you come and uh, listen to me? The objective is, as St. Thomas Aquinas said, to approximate the truth. Only God knows the truth, but we can definitely endeavor to reach it. Otherwise, if the truth does not exist, what the heck are we doing chasing terrorists? Maybe they are just a figment of our imagination. Yes, we need to restore very many things to get this country going again. Yes, thank you. Last one? Yes? Uh, yes, one more. Sounds good. Yes, sir. Uh, what do you think is the likelihood that Russia will uh, invade or somehow overtake Belarus? I know the relationship between Lukashenko and Putin has soured recently, and the Belarus economy is really that changed. And what would the USA do? Well, uh, you, we would object most strenuously and castigate them and not allow the wives of some of the bad guys to shop in Paris. Yes, uh, that would be really uh, painful. It works on some African tyrants, you know, the wives nag them, but they kill fewer people so they can get visas to shop at needless markup. Uh, but what is the likelihood of an invasion of Belarus? That would be really ham-fisted. Right now, Russia uses targeted uh, economic warfare measures against Belarus because... Here, I'll ask you a question. What is the country that has suffered most because of the sanctions imposed on Russia? Poland. It used to sell everything it could to Russia. So, <clears throat> Belarus, Belarus buys it repacks it so it looks local, even if it's from the EU, and, se and sends it to Russia. Sometimes, I remember one time I was there, and everybody was very excited about a trip <coughs> which the border, Russian border police gave, and there was no border then. And there still isn't. The border is still porous between Russia and Belarus. There are only a few, increasingly more, but a few bona fide border posts. So the Russian police chased a truck full of Polish apples with a Belarusian driver who was smuggling them into, <laughs> uh, into Russia. Uh, the truth is Putin punishes Belarus. I don't see any military uh, moves on the part of the Belarusians to defend themselves. They don't even make uh, they don't even pretend the way that uh, uh, Ukrainian military builds a fence and promises to defend every inch of whatever is left of uh, Ukraine against Russia. No, the Belarusians don't do that. In fact, there have just been joint maneuvers. There are Russian bases in Belarus which operate more or less without impediment, except from time to time, the Belarusians rem uh, 
uh, remind the Russians that this is Belarus, the, the Russians should give them something for it. And when um, there are border incidents, and I'm not saying <coughs> sealed border, but problems with unimpeded traffic, uh, Lukashenko makes noises that he loves the Chinese. And the Chinese then build a road and buy up some wood products outside of Vitebsk or something. So Lukashenko attempted to use Minsk as a springboard to Moscow. That didn't work out, so he turned himself into a, from a KGB, former KGB border guard, into a, um, a, a, a national, Bol a Belarusian national Bolshevik. And it patters on. He's, he's truly the last dictator in, in Europe. Uh, Putin sometimes gets annoyed with him, but not too much. Also, a lot of the altercations with Moscow are for show because the tougher Putin sounds against Lukashenko, the more generous the EU is. And so are we. There have been, I don't know if you've noticed, demonstrations against uh, a, a new law imposed by Lukashenko, the law on vagrancy or on bums, that you are a social parasite. Normally, Lukashenko would crack down on them. He would crack down on, commemor on, a, on, a, on, a, on a picket uh, that wants to preserve a site of mass murder called Kuropati outside of Minsk, but uh, he hasn't, because he's been, he's been getting stuff from the EU and from us. So he's going now through his liberal, liberal stage. It's the alternance, like with, we experienced with the Kremlin. If they wanted something, they, they pretended to be liberalizing. That's it. I don't think that Belarus is uh, in the cards right now, but should, uh, should the riots develop, real Maidan-like situation, and uh, Lukashenko calls in the cavalry from Moscow, everything's possible. Remember, well, Lukashenko would be reluctant to do it. I think he's ready to kill, and he wants to stay in power. He'd be reluctant to call in the Kremlin, because it's better to be your own satrap than just a governor of one of the satrapies within the empire. That is why he is reluctant to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, push too much uh, for uh, either Russian involvement or uh, direct Russian intervention into anything. He just enjoys himself there. It's not what he wanted. He wanted Moscow, but Putin got Moscow, so it's a consolation prize called Belarus. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for coming.